Today we're going to be reading um, the entire chapter of chapter 2 in Genesis. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall in a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. 
Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, teach us your word that we might follow you all our days. Give us understanding so that we might obey with all our hearts and direct us in all of this that we might walk in you, for in that there is great delight. Amen. An American investment banker was holidaying in a beautiful coastal seaside Mexican village and he noticed a fisherman pulling up to the pier with a couple of large yellowfin tuna in his boat and he complimented the fisherman on the catch and said, oh, how long did it take you to catch them? And the fisherman said, oh, not long, not long at all. The American said, well, what do you do with all your time? And the fisherman said, well, you know, I, uh, I sleep late, I do a little fishing, I play with my kids, I take a siesta with my wife, and then in the evenings I stroll into the village and sip wine and play guitar with my friends. I have a, a rich and full life. And the American scoffed and looked at him and said, oh, look, I can fix this for you. What you need to do is you need to stay out fishing for longer and, and catch more. Um, and then you can buy a bigger boat. And then once you've got a bigger boat, you can even buy a whole, a whole fleet of boats. The Mexican looked confused. The fisherman said, well, but then what would happen? He said, well, then you can start selling not just to kind of to the middleman. You could open a cannery and you could uh, start uh, controlling the production and even the distribution of all your product. Uh, but then what would happen, said the fisherman. Uh, American kept going, well, that's the best part. Then you can uh, move to uh, L.A. or to New York City and you could expand your growing business empire. But then what would happen? Oh, that's the best bit. Then you could sell it uh, on the stock market, your company. You could make millions of dollars, millions upon millions of dollars. The fisherman said, but then what would I do? The American said, well, then you can retire and you can move to a beautiful Mexican fishing village where you can (laughs) fish, sleep late and fish and... Now, why am I telling you a joke about all these things? Why am I telling you a joke about work? Well, because work is such a huge part of our lives, isn't it? Uh, And often such a confusing part of our lives as well. I remember uh, someone once came to me and said, "Uh, look, you know, you you teach us so well how to live as a Christian on a Sunday, uh, but can you teach us how to live as a Christian when we're at work? And I hope you understand that what you hear from this pulpit is of more value than just on a Sunday, but the point does stand, doesn't it? It would be neglectful if we didn't talk from time to time about what God's Word has to say to us about being workers and and what that means in our world today. And so that's what we're going to do for three weeks. We're going to spend three weeks talking about this topic. Um, I'm not going to answer every question or every kind of go through everything today. Uh, It's such a big topic that I thought it was worth at least three weeks But we are going to begin today, and we are rightly going to begin at the beginning, uh, at Genesis chapter 2. And I do want to give you three really foundational truths from Genesis chapter 2 that we can build on in the weeks to come. So three truths, really simple. They're there in the outline that you got as you came in. Firstly, God is a worker. 
Uh, Secondly, we are workers. And then lastly, we aren't only workers. So firstly then, God is a worker. Just have a look again at Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Because three times in those verses we are told that what God had been doing in creating our world and our universe was work. When God says, let there be light, he was working. When God said, makes the sea and, and the sky, he was working. When God separated the animals into all of their different kinds, God was working. And, says the Lord Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 17, even now, as God upholds and sustains the universe, God is working. And so the God we meet in the Bible, especially in Genesis 1 and 2, is a God who works. He is a creative artist, he's a cosmic gardener, he's a divine craftsman, and he's even a poet who chronicles his work. And straight away, that's incredibly significant. Genesis 1 and 2 won't allow us to see work as demeaning in any way. God dignifies work by revealing himself to be a worker. Uh, And he will continue to do so throughout all of the scriptures. In fact, all of God's great acts, all of the things that God does, creation, but also revelation and judgment, salvation, sanctification, glorification, all of the great works that God does are at some point described in the scriptures as a work that God, our triune God, does. But the work that we find God bringing dignity and meaning to in Genesis chapter 2 is actually of the most mundane kind as well. It's the ordinary work of gardening. Uh, Verse 7, God makes the man out of the the dust of the ground. Verse 8, God plants a garden in the east. You know, here is God, hands in the the dirt, getting, getting dusty. God bringing dignity to even the most mundane, dirty, physical and very ordinary sort of job. And straight away, actually, we are somewhat at odds with our world. When we think about work in our world today, we we all, I think, tend to have a sort of hierarchy in our minds, don't we? You know, there's some jobs that we tend to view as being more important or more significant or more satisfying as others, Uh, you know, and we, we pay the jobs accordingly. And so, you know, up the top you have... You know, the doctor, you have the lawyer, you have the, the CEO, you know, and down the bottom you have the ordinary kind of physical, manual, labour kinds of jobs, even like gardening. And it, it tends to be pretty true, doesn't it? You know, I, I remember years ago, I was, um, uh, I was running the, the Christian group, actually, at one of the, the top academic high school in New South Wales, James Roos, and uh, one of my leaders, actually, she came top of the exams uh, that year for the whole of the state. Uh, and there was an article in the paper, a paper about her, and they, they didn't ask, you know, what are you going to do with your life? They, instead, they asked, where are you going to do medicine? You know, that was just the assumption. You're going to do medicine. And, and, you know, being a good Chinese girl, she did go off and do medicine. What the paper didn't publish is the reason why she wanted to do medicine was so that she could be a medical missionary, which is where she is now, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, but there is a hierarchy, isn't there, in our minds? Uh, and we formalise that hierarchy by paying people as we think they ought to be. But here's God in Genesis 2, and God is doing something right down the bottom. He's doing one of the most ordinary things. And if God does it, then there must be dignity to even the most mundane, dirty, physical jobs. And that's a very different picture than we get from our world today. There's a really important lesson here. God is a worker. There is something significant and good and right to all work. 
Work is a good part of our lives. We may not always feel like that, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But straight away, here in the beginning, work is a good thing, and God blesses it and God does it. But let's keep going. Because secondly, we too are also workers, which comes as no surprise. After all, if God is a worker... We are told we are made in his image, so no surprise, we too are workers. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, there is a little bit of a perspective shift that goes on. Uh, Chapter 1 gives us the cosmic God-level perspective of this great work of creation. But Genesis chapter 2, we come right down and we become a kind of... The vantage point is from within creation. We see the kind of human level. Of creation, And from this perspective, it becomes very clear that creation needs workers. So have a look at chapter 2, verse 5, would you? 2, verse 5. Uh, Plants have not grown because there's been no rain and uh, there's no one to work the ground. There are no workers. And so God creates the first man, the first worker, in verse 7, from the very dust of the earth and breathes the breath of life into him. And this man we know from Genesis 1 is made in God's image. She is the very pinnacle of all that God has created. He is destined to rule over all of creation, to, to fill it and to subdue it, to do the work of making creation fit for human beings that they might expand and, and grow and, and flourish within it, to fill the creation mandate of Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27. Uh, But before we let that kind of idea go to our heads, that somehow we are the great work of God destined to rule over the earth, we're made to rule over the earth as God's representatives, again, as his image bearers, under God's instruction and following his direction. And so we are, in modern terms, the middle management of creation. That kind of brings you back down to earth, doesn't it, straight away? Human beings are the, the middle management of creation, less than God but made to care for and rule over the animals, the birds, the fish, the plants. In God's creation, we are entrusted to look after all that he has made for him and on his behalf. And if we ever try to be more than that, if we ever try to be more than that middle management of creation, well, the results are terrible, as Genesis chapter 3 makes very clear. But even in Genesis 2, there is a problem, there is an obstacle to human work. And that is, the job is just too big. Creation is a wilderness. It's a a wild frontier. How can one person, how can Adam alone actually tame this land? And so God gets him started. Like every good parent gets their child started on that big homework assignment. God, verse 8, plants a garden in Eden a paradise of pleasing and and fruitful trees, including the the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's the source of these kind of four life-giving, resource-rich rivers in uh, chapter 2, verses 10 to 14. It's a a little piece of of perfection, you know, apart from the fact that there's only fruits and vegetables to eat. Everything is beautiful. Everything is wonderful. Um, And then in verse 15, God puts the man into this garden paradise and he asks him, now it's your turn. He says, now, now you work the garden. I've got you started, but now it's your turn to take over. Uh, you go, fill the earth and subdue it. Clear it, till it, grow it, rule over it all in my name. Make the, the rest of the world like this 
perfect little garden in Eden that I have started. And Adam's job is to finish what God began. Creation is a project. It's not finished. It's not complete until humanity takes its place as workers within it, to bring order to the rest of the worlds. And that's part of the goodness of our creation. It is made to need us. We're not an optional extra in this world, us human beings. We are an essential part of it. We all have something meaningful and fulfilling to do in this world. And so the man gets started and the man, he works like God. Uh, So, you know, God planted the garden in chapter 2, verse 8, but now here in 2.15, the man will work it and look over it and watch over it. It even extends to naming things. In chapter 1, it was God who kind of named everything, but here in chapter 2, it's the man in 2.19 who will name all of the animals. And it's here in verse 18 that we discover that there is a second obstacle to the work of this man. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That is, this job of of bringing God's order to all of creation, it's still too big for Adam alone, uh, even with the head start of Eden. Uh, Just one person is never going to be enough. Uh, And so God sets out to create a helper for Adam. And that verse 18 there, that word helper is a very important word. It's a very deliberate choice by God to use that word. Because when the woman, when Eve is created... She is created not just as a companion. Uh, she's created not just as someone to kind of come home to at the end of the workday and sort of, you know, debrief with it and rest with. Um, but she's made as someone to join with the man in his work. Uh, she comes to him equal in abilities and resourcefulness. Uh, Eve enters into the world and joins Adam in his work. Uh, they are designed to work in partnership with one another. But Eve is also different from Adam. She's not the same. Uh, the creation of Eve doesn't increase the total numbers of work, workers in creation from one to two, uh, because Eve's, Eve's difference from Adam means that when they come together in marriage at the end of the chapter, uh, they are also the beginning of creation's first family, and from them will come the whole human race, each and every one of them made to be workers in God's creation project. You know, it's, it's really important to actually read that verse 18 properly. Uh, uh, most people today kind of read that verse, and there's whole books devoted to this. Well, they'll read that verse and they'll, they'll say that the problem there is relational or, or the problem there is emotional, you know, that somehow Adam is lonely, you know, he needs a woman in his life or he's just kind of not complete or something. It's not saying that at all. It's not saying anything of the sort. It's saying that this is a work problem and Eve is created as a solution to a, a work problem. Adam is a worker, and Adam is a worker even before he becomes a husband and a father. And marriage and family, as they come as a solution to this, this, this work problem that is in this creation project. And so marriage and family, when it does come, they come as a, as a partnership in the service of God and his purposes. Before it is an intimate and close romantic relationship. And to put it another way, marriage in Genesis chapter 2, it's actually... It's economic before it is emotional. It's realistic before it's romantic. But really, that's a 
a whole other series, three weeks on marriage, we could do kind of talking about all of that. Now, back to work. I think that the work that Adam does is actually a great way of understanding all of work. Uh, gardening is a great paradigm for understanding all of our work. Because what, what do you do when you're gardening? What do you, you do when you get gardening? Well, uh, you, you mess with the garden, don't you? The, the act of gardening is a, an act of destruction, of kind of pulling things out and then putting them back together again in a way that's even better. Uh, you shape it, you, you order it, you rearrange it. A gardener is creative until all of a garden's potential is brought out, whether that potential be, be food or whether that potential be beauty or, or peace or calm or whatever it is, until it's, it's good for human beings providing food and beauty. And I think all work is like that. All work is, you know, rearranging the raw materials of our world for the prosperity and the good of humanity. It's, it's serving others. God provides the raw materials. God even provides the talents. And we work to creatively rearrange them to make this world good for human beings. You know, I've, all work is like this. You know, what is music if it's not sound rearranged into song? Uh, what is building if it's not stone and dirt rearranged into a home? What is writing if it's not words rearranged into a story or a poem? Uh, what is science if it's not data rearranged into understanding? Uh, what is accounting if it's not numbers rearranged into whatever the client wants the numbers to be rearranged into? <laughs> Sorry to all the accountants in the audience. I joke because I used to be one of you. Uh, all of them are creative expressions of God-given resources and talents, all in the service of others, uh, making this a good world for God's image bearers as they complete God's creation projects. And I think straight away what this means is we actually need to really broaden our definition of work. Uh, it's true, there are other times where we need to narrow it. Uh, sometimes we need to narrow our definition of work. There are things, I think, in our world today that people call work and are even paid for that I don't think add to human flourishing. You know, to be blunt, I don't think that prostitution or pornography are actually work by the Bible's definition. The online world of female exploitation is, does not and never will help the human race to flourish. A crime, even if it pays, is not work. Uh, the Bible would not affirm those things as being good for his image bearers. So sometimes we need to narrow a definition of work. But mostly what we need to do is broaden it. Uh, what we need to do is it's, it's, see not that work is, is not just what we are paid to do. I think that's the temptation, isn't it? I think these days if you say the word work, what everyone imagines in their mind is straight away, that's what I get a paycheck for. That's, that's, I'm working when I'm in the office or I'm in the hospital or I'm at the, whatever your, your work might be. Uh, the, these days, that's the way we do it. We just have this kind of this purely economic view of work. But biblically speaking, paid work is only one part of our work. And actually, anything that I do to serve other human beings, anything that I do in order to see human beings flourish in this earth is work. It's part of that, that creation project that God has given us, not just what we're paid to do. So straight away, what's the obvious one, isn't it? Well, the mum who is at home. That's work. In fact, it's hard to imagine anything uh, that is quite as much about the flourishing of another human being as being a mum who stays at home. 
And to be completely honest with you, after uh, watching Bon look after our four kids, it's hard for me to imagine any work that's harder than kind of raising children as well. Uh, and in fact, in, in, in that kind of hierarchy of human flourishing, I think being a mum, being able to be a parent devoted to the care of your children, I think that is just about the most wonderful thing you can possibly do, just about the most beautiful thing you can do uh, to care for that, that next generation. It really deserves to be up the top of our hierarchy of all work, doesn't it? And then right after that should be plumbing. <laughs> because indoor plumbing is just the best thing in the, in the world. And, you know, the truth is, plumbers do more for our health than doctors ever do. It's just we're, we're so used to it. Anyway, so there's my little ad for the plumbers. What about a student? Well, a student is someone who is preparing for work, aren't they? They're, they're wanting to take their place in, in making a contribution and they're preparing to do so. Looking for work is work. Looking for the place where, they can, where someone can make a contribution, where someone can serve, where someone can, can, can you know, help and, and do things for others, that's, that's part of work as well. Volunteering is, is part of work. Uh, but, you know, what about, what about doing the washing up at home? Well, there's bringing order to chaos, isn't there? There's kind of making a, a place wonderful and, and fit for human beings. Is that work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so is mowing the lawn, taking out the garbage, so is cooking the dinner, you know. These are all work. These are all part of ruling over the world in the image of God. Uh, they're all part of the, the productive and even creative service of others for the good of all humanity. And even in our modern world, we do recognise this. We just hide it because we professionalise lots of these things. We turn them into paid jobs. Effectively, we, we outsource them. Uh, we do value the raising of children. It's just we usually outsource it to daycare centres or to, you know, to, to schools too. We professionalise children's education where, as once upon a time, that was the responsibility of a parent. And even, you know, you go out to dinner, you go to the restaurant, that's just professionalising the cooking and the, and the cleaning up afterwards. You know, none of those things are wrong uh, in and of themselves. I'm fine with all of those things. But we do live in a world where there's great incentives by governments and, and corporations to kind of uh, keep as many things as professional as possible because you can tax a worker in a daycare centre, but you can't tax a stay-at-home mum. You know, we've got a, we've got a strange world because of there's all these hidden financial incentives all the way through it. But we do need to have a biblical understanding of work. I mean, historically speaking, uh, what's really gone on is, is hundreds of years old. It's got to do with the Industrial Revolution. Our understanding of work was, was reshaped. Before the Industrial Revolution in the late uh, 18th and the early 19th century, uh, there was no separation between the home life and work life. Uh, and that was like things were throughout most of human history. You know, you, you really, you ran your own little farm or your own little business and you ran it in your home and the whole family was involved in it. They were all part of it. Uh, but now we kind of consider them kind of two uh, very different spheres entirely. And only very occasionally do you come across someone where those two spheres actually significantly overlap. Uh, and by the way, my wife, Bon, is one of them. Uh, my, where's my, my grandfather's in the audience. I didn't check with him whether I can use this illustration and he's here. But my grandfather, not my grandfather, my Bond's, what am I saying? Bond's father, my father-in-law. Let me think through what I'm saying here. My, my father-in-law ran a news agency. Uh, and he grew up living out the back of that news agency. 
And the whole family had a little kind of place in that news agency. Bond tells me very fondly about, you know, when she first started, her job was to kind of rearrange all the cards on the shelves so that they were in the right order and in the right place. And, and then she kind of stepped up to kind of sweeping and, and cleaning things out. And eventually she spent time on, on the till. And that was just what she and all her sisters did. It was the family business. And so there was this huge overlap in her life uh, when they were growing up between the work the family work and the family home. Um, But that's not what most people's experience of life is like. But the bottom line is it's biblically ridiculous to count paid work as more important than unpaid work, especially when they're effectively the same thing. Uh, We do need a very broad definition of work in our lives. And I think this is a really important thing to grasp. If we fall into the trap of thinking like the world, then we will only ever value what is paid. And if we value work based on how much it is paid, then actually we begin to either, you know, value ourselves too much because we are in a kind of a high-paying, well-paid job, and we begin to value others too little because they might be in a lower-paying job or even in a a job that's not paying at all. Uh, We'll either think too much or too little of people. We'll begin to show favourites. And that will lead to all sorts of problems and ungodliness amongst us. And really, the whole thing is ridiculous, isn't it? Because do you remember during COVID? During COVID, we found out who the real essential workers were, didn't we? You know, it turns out that the people who truck food around our country and pack the shelves at Woolies, turns out they're much more important to our life than we ever think normally. But it's also important in our own lives to think like this as well. Let me just speak to the men for a moment because I want to address something that is a stereotype but it's a stereotype because there is a truth to it and that is men when you come home from work, when you come home from work you're not moving from the place of work to the place of rest you know where I I go to relax and do as little as possible. You're moving from one place of work that God has given you to another place of work that God has given you, where you're not paid for the work that you do. Uh, and you're going to the work of you know, being a husband or being a father or being a good neighbour or being a good flatmate or being a good member of your family or even being a good a blessing to your community that lives around you. Uh, you know, and you know, please don't hear me as somehow saying that I'm perfect at this. I know I'm not. In fact, if you want to know how imperfect I am, you could just go and have a conversation with Bon and she'll happily tell you. But I am trying to make sure that when I get home, my attitude is not now it's time to sit down and relax, but rather my attitude is now it's time to roll up my sleeves and get involved. Now it's time to, to get to work, uh, to, to serve and do whatever is needed for the family. Uh, and that what I do at home is in no way less important than what I do when I'm in the office or whatever my workplace might be. Because God is a worker and I am a worker under him. And there is a dignity and a goodness to all work that is for the good and for the, for the service of others. No matter if it's paid or unpaid, no matter where it fits into the strange hierarchies that we create in our world, we humans, we're built to be workers. We're built to serve others. And so that's what we ought to do. God is a worker. We are workers. And that is good. 
But by God's grace, we are not only workers. We are not only workers. We are also resters. We are also resters. Did you notice in in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, even before the fall, there was a rightness and there was even a need to rest after work. God rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. The rightness of rest is not something that happens because of sin and the fall. Uh, From the very beginning, God also built into our world this idea of rest and this idea that we are resters as well as workers. And God even tells us the exact proportions we are one to the other, which is fairly rare that it's quite numerical, but it, it is because this pattern of resting one in seven is maintained throughout the rest of scriptures. We are six parts worker to one part rester. And life is better when you can actually follow this pattern. I, you know, I know that's hard. I know that's extremely difficult to do. But to actually have a, you know, a whole 24 hours off where you and your, your family do uh, rest together, it's a, it's a wonderful life-giving thing. A whole day where you can do it as little as possible. It's a, it's a really good thing to do. Uh, but it's hard to do. And it's hard to do for two groups in particular. It's really hard for the workaholic to rest because the workaholic always works. There's just never something that they don't want to be doing in their work. But actually the other person who finds it really hard to rest, ironically, is the lazy person. The lazy person is a bad rester because the lazy person lets whatever work they need to do fill all the time that they have available. Whereas to be able to rest the way that God intends us to rest, you actually have to work really hard. You actually have to be extraordinarily disciplined because you have to get all your work done in six days so that on the seventh day you can rest. But now in this world that we live in, a world that is on the other side of the fall of Genesis chapter 3, rest is very hard to come by. Sadly, What was a joy for Adam and Eve in the garden uh, very quickly becomes a harsh slavery outside of it. Uh, That little bit in uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 about the trees, it's ominous, isn't it? It's ominous because we know that that tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be a temptation too strong for Adam and Eve to resist. They do rebel against God and they eat the fruit which God commanded them that they should not eat. They think they can do better than just being the middle managers of creation. And as they do so, that sin enters into the world. And when sin comes, so does death and decay and disintegration. And everything begins to fall apart. And just as they rebel against God, so the very very ground itself actually rises up in rebellion against Adam and Eve. And so come to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, very quickly. If you've got your Bibles open there, it should even be just on the next page. Genesis 3, verse 17. To Adam, God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow... You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, 
and to dust you will return. See, a new word is used to describe work in Genesis chapter 3, and that is the word toil. And toil is very different from work. Uh, Work was painless, but toil is painful. Work is creative, but toil is repetitive. And work was joyful and fulfilling, but toil is stressful and difficult and frustrating. And toil is necessary, God says. If you do not toil, you will not eat, he warns. And that seems like a new idea. I suspect that in Genesis chapter 2, the idea that work was connected with kind of day-to-day survival was foreign. You just, the, the trees were beautiful, they were plentiful, you just reached out and you ate. But now, in a fallen world, if you want to eat, you will have to work for it, you will have to toil. And there are still moments that we, in this world, we, we do experience work as work, where we do uh, experience the wonderful and creative and fulfilling aspects of it, but for most of us, it, in most places, at most times, what we feel instead is the toil of work. It's no joy, it's no struggle, it's a treadmill that we cannot get off. It's a slavery in a world that does not believe that all work has dignity or meaning or significance, a world that does not mean that work, does not believe that work is the creative service of others to promote human flourishing. In this world, world of toil, rest is a very hard thing to come by. Because we do live in a world where we are, by and large, defined by our work and only by our work. I mean, that's an easy thing to prove, isn't it? You know, uh, you meet someone new in life. What's the first thing you do? You ask them what their name is. What's the second thing you ask? What do you do? And once you've worked that out, you've got all the information you need to know about them and where they fit and where you fit in relation to them in that that pecking order that we have. And that definition, you know, uh, that definition, it begins really early. You know, I I come to the night, we come to to uni church in the evening. It's a wonderful experience. You know, this room is packed full of university students. It's, It's fantastic. But you ask them what do you do? And they don't say, oh, I'm a student. They, they already start saying, oh, I'm a teacher or I'm a physio or I'm... I'm like, no, you're not. You're still studying. You're still at university. But no, they, very early, that identity idea, it really is in ground within us by our worlds. We're defined by what we do. And if we are defined by what we do, you have to keep doing it or you lose who you are. We have to toil to prove ourselves. We have to toil for meaning, toil for identity, toil for, for significance... There is never any rest in our world from that sort of toil. It just goes on and on and on. And you know, that's what's happening in our world today. The next decade, uh, this is my prediction, so you know, take it with a grain of salt, but the next, the next decade will all be about delaying retirement. You know, the, the pension age is already going up. Last uh, Saturday week ago at the, the Perth Diocesan Synod, we abolished the retirement age. Uh, so apparently I'm here forever now. But, but that is, that's what's going on. There's tremendous pressure now beginning to fall upon people to keep working as long as possible. And that pressure comes often from within ourselves. And you know what? I, I even think that makes us bad workers. When our work becomes about our identity and about our, our, our finding our, our meaning, and our, then it, it becomes all about us. It becomes all about our reputation 
And that's the opposite of the way that God intended. God intended that our work be for the service of others, the good of all humanity. But we lose that focus when we make our toil about how, who we are. But by God's grace, we're not just workers, we're not just toilers, we're also resters. In Genesis, God created humanity on the sixth day, which by the Jewish calendar, that's Friday. God made us just in time for the weekend, just in time to enjoy the seventh day of rest with him. Isn't that nice? It's a very significant part of who we are. You know, most jobs, you've got to work at least 12 months before you can take a break. You have to work for your rest. You have to earn any time off. But in Genesis, God made us just in time to rest with him. God gives us rest out of his generosity and grace. It's a gift. Now, the rest of the seventh day is hard to come by and our work has become toil. But another rest is coming. Rest from the work of trying to survive, let alone the rest of trying to find meaning and and identity and value in a fallen world. The rest of knowing that we are valuable to God. The rest of knowing that we are valuable to humanity. And how do you get that rest? Well, the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 said this. He said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How sweet are those words to those who have known only toil. How sweet is the rest that Jesus brings. It's not an absence of work, Jesus says. Yes, there's, there's still a burden, there's still a yoke, but it's light. It's gentle. It's placed on us by someone who is humble and who cares for us. When God completed his work of creation, he sat back and he said, it is finished and he rested. But when the Lord Jesus Christ finished his work of salvation, he cried out, it is finished, and we rested. Jesus said, I have lived the life that you should have lived. I have died the death that you deserve to die. I have done everything to bring you forgiveness. I have done everything to restore you to God. And when you believe in me, when you trust in me, then it is finished. Finally, you can find deep rest for your soul. Finally, you can find meaning and identity and and value and not because you have earned it, not because you have to work for it, not because you have to toil for it, but because I have given it to you. It is a gift. The Bible says that that toil that we experience in our day-to-day life, that toil, we can find rest in Jesus. In Jesus, we can find all that sense that God loves us, that we are cared for, that we are valuable, that we are meaningful. We can find all that sense that that what we do is good and good for others. We can find all of that in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not need to toil for it. 
There's so much more to say. I'm glad we've got two more weeks. But you and I, we live between that wonderful beginning of Genesis chapter 2 and the wonderful end when toil will be no more, between the rest of the seventh day and the rest of heaven. But because of the work that Jesus has done, we can rest in him even now. Knowing that work is a good part of our lives, knowing that our work has, has meaning and value and significance, but also knowing it doesn't define us. It doesn't dictate who we are. But instead, we know that we can rest in Jesus and even rest in him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the extraordinary place that you have given us in your creation. For you have made us to bear your image and you have made us to steward the world that you have made. What an enormous privilege. What an enormous dignity that you have given to each and every one of us and to all the work that we do. Lord, we do pray that you might help us to remember this. Help us to value all work and value all workers in your worlds. But also help us to remember the rest you have given us in Jesus. Rest from the toil that work has become in a broken and fallen world. Remind us again of the rest that we can only have because of the work that Jesus has done for us. And Lord, we ask all this in his name. Amen.